Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. Let us begin by a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for these words written down, preserved for the ages, that we might know Christ. We pray that your spirit would do that work in us, that we would see him, that we would believe in his name, and that by believing in his name we would have life. Help us now in our weakness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're making our way through John's Gospel at a pretty quick pace. Part of that is the long readings we've been doing. My hope is that as we go through here, we continue to feel the storyline progress. If you remember where we were last week, Jesus had 
just gone up to the temple. It was the Feast of Booths. And if you weren't here, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Remember, the Feast of Booths was one of the main feasts of the Jewish year where people from around all of Israel would come in and they would set up these little tents or shacks and live in them for eight days uh, to remind them of the time when they sojourned in the wilderness and lived in tents. It's also a, a, a confession that the Lord is the one who lives in the midst of his people. And so they come and they literally live as close as they can to where the Lord's presence dwells in the temple. Jesus comes and he comes a little later. He doesn't come with his brothers. And he essentially starts his time there by defending the things he's done on the Sabbath. Jesus has been stirring up much controversy as the religious leaders don't like the things he is saying and doing. And so Jesus initially wanted to, uh, it seems, to defend himself, to explain himself, to, in many ways, uh, accuse the religious leaders of being wrong about the, the healing of the man on a Sabbath. And we move in beyond that now as, as the time of the feast is coming to a close. But I want us to focus today on really this one idea that Jesus gets to eventually in this passage, and that is this, that Jesus offers us living waters of eternal life. Jesus is going to proclaim, all who are thirsty, come to me. We're told that by John that he's referring to the Holy Spirit is going to give them this living water, similar to the phrase back when Jesus talked to the woman at the well. And so this is, this is where we're going to focus a lot of our attention. But if we're honest with ourselves, the idea of water, as Jesus relates it to the Holy Spirit and life with him and all of the things that come with the gospel, if we're honest, too often, I don't know that we're even thirsty. And this imagery of water and thirst is really pointing to something greater. It's, it's pointing to the desires within mankind, the things that we seek after. It might be difficult for us to remember because it's well, the middle of February, but it is a nice day today. Um, but I'd like you to try to remember a time when you were out working outside in some capacity on a ridiculously hot summer day. You know, high humidity, sun beating down on you. If you're one of those people that likes to jog or ride your bike, perhaps that comes to mind. Maybe it's more menial than that. It's after you've mowed your lawn. If you play on a sports team, it might be a halftime during your soccer or football game. But the heat of the day and the exhaustion of your exercise stirs up in us this great thirst, doesn't it? That dry mouth you have in the midst of that hot day as you just, you don't want anything else. You can't talk to anybody else until you get something to drink. And you ever notice how good water tastes on a day like that? Nothing is more refreshing than that cold sip in the midst of your thirst. I mean, the contrast to that is, of course, on any normal day when you aren't doing any, you know, physical activity, uh, there's nothing that really makes you thirsty. Or you might be offered a bottle of water and you would even turn it down. Or if you take a drink of water, it just doesn't have that same effect on us. It doesn't meet the same need of satisfaction. This is 
part of that imagery of desire and thirst that I want us to get into as we get into this passage. As Jesus says, all who are thirsty, he's calling out to those who the Father is building this desire, who are unable to do other things until they are satisfied in its true source. A little bit more background on the Feast of Booze that's helpful for our passage is that uh, there are two main symbols that are really happening in this, pass- in, in this feast. Uh, there is light and water. So if they were going to make a banner, you know, like a church would make a banner for their event coming up, it would likely have a candle and some water being poured out. That would be the two things. There's these rituals that they would do throughout to remind them of the Lord leading them by the pillar of fire. And the idea of water here really points back to uh, Moses hitting the rock and the water flowing from it to, to nourish his people, to quench their thirst. And so the fact that Jesus brings up this imagery of water is by no surprise. These people, no doubt, had just finished the feast. We were told halfway through here on the last day, Jesus begins to talk about thirst. So they had either just that day finished this ritual, watching this ritual where the priest would carry water up and then pour it out, or it had just happened the day before and they would have been reflecting upon it. And so that gives us a little bit of background a little bit of background into the context where Jesus is speaking. Let's just go through our passages in a systematic way, and we'll land at the end with some points of application. So beginning in verse 25, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? And yet he is here speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? If you remember last week, uh, the passage was a much broader group of people, and they thought Jesus was being paranoid, perhaps crazy, to think somebody was trying to kill him. And yet, now we have this narrower group of people who live in Jerusalem, and they know the plans of the religious leaders. And yet they see their fear, their inability to act. He's standing right here. Why don't they do something? Maybe they know he's the Christ. Their authority, their reputation is beginning to come into question. And then we have this line that uh, they know where he's from. But when the Christ comes, nobody will know where he comes from. Now this isn't an assumption at the time uh, when Jesus shows up that nobody would know where the Christ comes from. And in some ways... Uh, that's an overstatement of the, the expectation that nobody ever would know where he's from. And, and ironically, so John likes to put a lot of irony in his gospel. Because ironically, we'll find out later, they don't know where he came from. They assume things about him that are incorrect. And so even this passage is one way in which they misunderstand who Jesus was and perhaps how he more fully fills this category than they understand. So Jesus responds to this accusation. He says, hey, you know me. You know where I come from. But I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is probably a kind of an offensive statement for Jesus to make. 
I can't think of any higher ideal for the people of Israel than to know God. And Jesus has been alluding to the one he sent, being his father, being God himself, time and time again. And so what he is declaring to these people is that they don't know God. At least some of the people are greatly offended by him. And so we're told that they seek to arrest him, but nobody lays a hand on him. For his hour has not yet come. That idea of the hour not yet come is a continual theme in John's gospel to remind us of the hour of Christ's betrayal, arrest, uh, execution, and resurrection. The the, the end, the time in which Jesus' ministry will come to its focal point at the cross. That time has not yet come. And so there's a reminder here that God is in control of what's happening. Just as Jesus comes not in his own accord and he does what the Father wants him to, so it is the Lord is orchestrating all of these things, and Jesus is not arrested yet because it's not time. And yet we're told that there are some people who hear Jesus' words and they believe. And they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They've seen all that Jesus has done. They've heard all that he said, and, and they're beginning to weigh the odds. Could somebody come and do more things than this? We're reminded throughout John's gospel that faith based solely on signs is not a sure foundation. It's often wavering, temporary. And so we have some sense in which these people are beginning to thirst, beginning to understand, perhaps drawing near to Jesus to learn more about him. And it upsets the Pharisees greatly. We're told in verse 32 that they have issued the arrest warrant. They're they're done messing around and uh, they're done being ridiculed by the people because, you know, here's Jesus standing in front of them and they're not doing anything. So enough is enough. They're going to send the officers to arrest him. To give you a little background on the, the religious context in which this is happening. So Jerusalem is under Roman rule, but it kind of has its own liberty to... Uh, you know, c- contain its own s- self. So the, the temple in particular, as long as nothing terrible isn't happening, there's no riots happening, the Romans kind of leave it to the Israelites to manage themselves. And so at the temple, there would have been temple officers, guards, those kind of things, and uh, they were from the tribe of Levi, you know, related to the priests. So they tell these men to go and arrest Jesus. Jesus, before they are able to come to him, or perhaps when they arrive, says this, I will be with you a little longer, and where I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am coming, where I'm going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean? He will seek me and will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. The people don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, of course, here is talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to God's right hand. He's going somewhere where they can't go. 
But of course, they're thinking in terms of what's happening in this scene. They, they maybe are seeing some officers coming to arrest him, and they're thinking, okay, he's going to run away. Where's he going to go? Is he going to go out to the Greek-speaking area and speak to those people and teach them? That would have been outside of the authority of the Jewish leaders at this time. They couldn't send officers out beyond you know, their, their contained area within the Roman province. And so maybe he's going out there. They, they don't understand what Jesus is getting at which is so often the case. And then we come to the last day of the feast, and Jesus proclaims these words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a very similar phrase that you'll find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. It's this proclamation from the Lord that says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus is taking on the words of the prophet Isaiah. And he's saying, anyone who comes, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus is putting himself at the source of the Lord's provision that is prophesied here by Isaiah. And here is where we get that imagery of thirst that I want us to focus on. Remember, uh, last chapter in John chapter 6, Jesus went through the, the idea of him being the bread of heaven. Uh, just as Moses gave bread in the wilderness, Jesus gives even greater bread, true bread from heaven. And now he moves on to water, the two main things in which God provides the people in the wilderness, bread and water. And we don't appreciate water unless we're thirsty. We don't appreciate bread unless we're hungry. Think about the other ways in which Jesus uses some of this language. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They need the acute sense in which you lack something. The thirst and the hunger for something that you need for satisfaction. Jesus promises to be the one to supply it. Jesus goes on to say, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus here is is referring to Ezekiel 47, which is another prophet from the Old Testament. And in the first 12 verses of chapter 47, we have this imagery of the eschatological temple. That means at the end of time, the the fulfillment temple, there's a throne. And from that throne flows a river. And the river goes through all these various places. And everywhere that water touches, life is brought. In fact, the, the river goes so far, goes into the sea. And in biblical imagery, the sea really kind of refers to the nations, those people who don't belong to Israel. And it even makes the sea fresh. It's the imagery of God's abundant blessing flowing from the throne of God. Jesus is saying he is the one who is providing that. He is the one seated on that throne. Jesus is saying if you want the rivers of water, if you want God's blessing, if you want the Holy Spirit, he is the one who can give it. John gives us some commentary. He says this about the Spirit. 
whom those who believed in him were, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. Throughout Scripture, not just here in Ezekiel 47, but throughout Scripture, water is used as an imagery for God's blessings. You see it in the Proverbs and in the Psalms. Tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in its season. It's the imagery in the temple as people uh, come with their sacrifices. They are washed in the basins. The, The people themselves are sprinkled with water. There's all sorts of imagery of God's blessing and washing and renewing in the imagery of water. And Jesus is saying he is the source of true water. And of course, just like in all other circumstances, Jesus isn't just talking about water. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, if you're thirsty, I got some bottles over here. Or I worked out a deal with the concession stand on the other side of the temple. You can put it on my bill. Jesus is, again, using an ordinary thing, an image that they would have been familiar with. Remember, an image they would have just seen in this celebration of the feast, of pouring out the water, of God providing water for his people. He says, you must come to me if you want true water, real water, living water. I'm the one seated on the throne. The people hear this, and they respond in a surprisingly affirming way. This really is the prophet. and others, this is the Christ. So at the time, there's different understandings about these characters who are supposed to show up as God really ushers in his redemption. And and many people thought that the prophet and the Christ were going to be two different people. They didn't realize that Jesus would fulfill both of these. But they're beginning to think, hey, this... Man, he really is the prophet. He really is the Christ. They're beginning to thirst for the things Jesus is saying. But not everyone believes, we're told in verse 41. People doubt because they say, Is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. And so, as has continued to be the case time and time again, there is division among the people. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I almost wonder here if this idea of Jesus even coming from the line of David, of course, we know they didn't, they didn't understand he was born in Bethlehem. We got, we got the inside scoop on that from the other gospel accounts, right? As, as we see Mary and Joseph go... The people here are very quick to write off someone from Galilee. Galilee being a place that's not highly esteemed at this time among the people of God. But I wonder if some of the, also the background here is the scandal of Jesus' birth. Because Joseph would have been well known to be in the line of David if we follow the genealogy as it's laid out for us. And yet these doubts about where Jesus is from, who his real dad is, are clouding the people's ability to understand. So the officers uh, that the the Pharisees and the the religious leaders sent out, they, they finally come back. Jesus is done talking. But they don't bring Jesus to them. And they're 
understandably upset. Why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. You see, these aren't just Roman guards. These aren't, you know, hired mercenaries who are at the whims of the the rulers of the day. These are Levites. These are religiously trained people. These are informed Jewish relatives of the priests. They're not willing to risk it. They see Jesus. They hear his words And they can't bring themselves to place themselves against him. No one else, no one has ever spoken like this man. They are thirsting for more of what Jesus has to say. Pharisees are indignant. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities here, have we, have any of us believed the Pharisees? Right? We're the guys that know everything. We're the ones that are in charge. We're the ones that decide what's right and wrong. We're your boss. And then he says, the crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This, this, uh, this idea of not knowing the law and being accursed is, is throughout the Old Testament. It's many of the indictments of the prophets against the people of God that they didn't know and follow and obey the law, and it caused the curses of the law to be laid upon them. Interestingly here, Nicodemus is brought back. If you remember, Nicodemus shows up in chapter 3. We have a little reference here to that. And he asks Jesus how he can enter the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus tells him he must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. kind of parts ways in a neutral way. And here he reemerges, and he doesn't necessarily defend Jesus. He doesn't necessarily align himself with Jesus, but he's calling for cool heads. There are things, uh, as I think about this exhortation from Nicodemus, it reminds me of our own church structures and denomination. We have these big books full of process. And the reason we have them is if there's a problem at a local level, it goes to the elders and they can go to a presbytery and they can go to an assembly. And there's, there's all of these ways in which we do things. So that, as Nicodemus says here, there's hearing and there's learning about what's happening. It's not a reaction and an emotional Response to something that seems one way but maybe is another. Nicodemus is calling them to chill out a little bit. Let's ask Jesus. Let's hear from him. Let's learn what he's really doing and saying. Of course, the Pharisees are not happy with this idea and they accuse him. In a very derogatory way, are you from Galilee to search and see that the prof- no prophet arises from Galilee? Now, this statement that no prophet will arise from Galilee is very false. There are two prophets in particular that we know well, you may have heard of. One is Nahum, this little book by him in the Old Testament. The other is Jonah. 
Nahum and Jonah have come from Galilee. Historically, it's true. These are books they would affirm as being from God's prophets. And there's maybe even others who would have come from Galilee. And so what we have here is not so much a theological statement, a biblically informed statement, but a statement of their disdain for Galilee and its reputation at its time. They cannot have a category from which the Christ comes from Galilee. Okay, so we've talked a lot about this passage. I hope it's helpful for you to understand what's happening. But we want to get back to why it matters. How does this affect who we are, what we do? What is Jesus proclaiming to us like he was proclaiming to the crowds? I think there's just some good questions for us to ask. As Jesus calls out to those, saying, All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. It begs the question, are we thirsty? Are we thirsty for what Jesus has to offer us? We're all thirsty for something. We all are being led by our desires. Right? Thirst is just this... A helpful way of understanding the way in which our desires lead us to something. Just as we don't want to talk to anybody until we get that cold drink on a hot day. So it is with all of our desires. They will be pursued until they're satisfied. And we're all thirsty for satisfaction in many things. Not all of them bad. We are thirsty for love from other people. We are thirsty for health. We're thirsty for wealth. We're thirsty for security. We're thirsty for knowledge and wisdom. We want to understand things. Maybe we're thirsty for recognition. Maybe there are unhealthy thirsts in our lives. Or our thirsts have caused us to do unhealthy, even sinful things. But these thirsts are only for temporary satisfaction. The people here are divided over Jesus. They lack the thirst to truly come to him. They don't understand the ultimate need that Jesus is going to satisfy. Many were interested in learning more about him, considering what he said and did. The religious leaders were too thirsty for their own power and control that they were unable to hear a word of it. But our deepest thirst, they caused us to abandon all other pursuits until we find that satisfaction. And as we think about the imagery of water, remember, God's blessing and God's spirit is what is in play. It's what it points to. And so the questions we ought to wrestle with as we look at our own desires is do we need God's blessing in our life or are we content without it? Like the river as it flows out into the various places and brings life, do we want to be planted by it or are we content to just look at it from afar, to come and visit it once in a while? But more pointed to this passage is the idea of God's Spirit. Do we need God's Spirit for our life? 
Or are we content to do it on our own? So much of our Christian activity is rooted in our own strength. That is not the way in which Christ has called his church, the people who are supposed to be indwelled by his very spirit. In all that we do, it's the thing that gives us power. In, in chapter uh, in Acts, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, wait. He tells the apostles, I'm going to heaven, wait. Wait, because when I get there, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will give you power to be witnesses. He's going to give us the Spirit that is going to be at work in us in a way that will forever transform us. As Jesus puts it here, rivers of flowing water. Too often we discount the working of God's Spirit in our life that is stirring the desire to be with Him, to be dependent upon Him, to seek Him, to come to Jesus knowing that you're thirsty. And too often we're content thinking, in my own strength, I'm a good enough dad. In my own understanding, I can understand the Scriptures I can manage my own sin. And we don't have a dependence, a desire to be drawn in and filled with God's Spirit that He might do these works in us. So often we aren't thirsty. May God give us that desire. May He do that work as His Spirit is being poured out on His people. May we hunger and thirst for Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you provide everything we need, including your very own spirit to empower us, to help us change, to be more like Christ. Stir in us a thirst for Jesus. Remind us of the need for the spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.